and welcome to this podcast of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. What we're doing today is we're discussing a paper from the Education and Practice section on I Can't Tell My Child They Are Dying, Helping Parents Have Conversations with Their Child. And with me today is Jan Baldridge, who's a clinical psychologist working at the Martin House Children's Hospice in Yorkshire. My name is Bob Phillips. I'm a part-time paediatric oncologist uh, and part-time I do systematic reviews and research. And part of my research is about children's palliative care. The situation I think we've got in the stuff that we're talking about today is that situation not where you have a child that has a diagnosis or a condition that might lead to their death, but more that situation where you know that the child is dying and die within the next month, weeks, maybe even days. That's a really tricky time. Is it right for us as clinicians, as, as families, to have discussions with children and young people about the fact that they are dying? Absolutely. My experience is that children are much more aware than we think they are. Sometimes they can feel very isolated and lonely with that knowledge because their parents are trying so hard to pretend that everything's all right. And children don't always understand that. They think, aren't their parents sad? Or don't they know what's happening? They have to keep it a secret from their parents. But so many, many times, children do have a sense of what's happening, that things are changing and they're moving into a new phase. Is it just the teenagers that we're talking about here? No, no. I've seen it in really young children, two, three-year-olds. Um, there was one child, he was about four, he, he used to speak, he, he'd lost his speech and his language, um, and he hated anybody talking about him being sick. You could never be sick or poorly. And about two days before he actually died, he said to his mum, Teddy's very poorly now. And he had some sense that things were changing in him. So I think everybody thinks it's teenagers, mm. um, 12 years, 13, 14. But it's right there in really young children too. I think as, as clinicians, broadly, we don't want to have those conversations with children, with young people, about the fact that they're dying. Partly we, maybe we hide behind, but, but also I think it's true that some parents would prefer us not to have those conversations and, and don't want to have those conversations with, with their children either. If the children are aware that they're dying, if they're aware that something has changed, not necessarily that they're dying, what is the advantage in opening those conversations with them? Is it not just better to let them carry on playing and having a life rather than... I think it's a very fine balance and you're absolutely right. Most children want to concentrate on living. As adults, we worry about um, advanced care planning and making plans for, for when we die. But children live in the moment. You're absolutely right and and that's very important to them and they don't want to talk about dying all the time and I think it's a very fine balance between keeping 
some hope alive and yet also meeting them honestly when they have worries and when they're concerned. One of the most important things we can do is to help to help the parents to be alongside the children. We can model things, we can suggest words, we can have conversations with parents, but the very best thing we can do is to help the parents be there for their child. I think one of the challenges that we face in oncology is that we're fairly bought into that idea from experience, from what other people have told us, that when children and young people want to talk about the change in illness, want to talk about their possible death, that it is a very positive thing for them. But as new families come through, they come along with a whole set of other baggage and other worries. There's often a great difficulty in the family accepting that those conversations can be... Yes. a useful thing and that it might be a bit different in because yeah. I th- I, in, in my head anyway I think there's something different about children who have had a single terribly traumatic event such as drowning yeah. or, or, or an overwhelming sepsis over the course of six hours with nothing behind it or a, a, a road traffic collision that has led to a an unsurvivable set of injuries. That that is a different sort of conversation. I think I think there's two things. I think even when there's been a, a sudden tra- traumatic event or crisis, sometimes it's still useful if if we as professionals can help parents be alongside their child, even in PICU, and just. Tell them how much they love them and that whatever happens, it's going to be all right. So even in that immediate thing, I think sometimes there's words that we can help parents with. I think the thing that you're talking about is really where we've got a bit more time. We've a a few days, weeks, a month maybe, where we want the parents and their child to use this time in the best possible way in the light of of them all knowing what's happening yeah we're not pretending you're going to be fixed and you come back home and everything's going to be all right and how how can we working clinically help parents who will never have had any experience of this how can we help them understand that this is an okay thing to do and how to do it Yes, I I mean, it's unimaginable for most parents ever to be in this situation. And maybe we don't see it every day in our working lives, but we might be a little more familiar with it than the parents. I think we forget how incredibly hard this is for parents, how hard it is what we're asking them to do. Um, From... From just being a parent who your job is to fix things and make life okay for your children and suddenly we're asking them to be alongside their child while they can't fix them and and while they help them to, to approach dying as positively as possible. Part of the challenge of doing this in clinical practice is that parents might turn around to you and say something like, I don't want to have this conversation, I don't want to have this conversation. 
um, you, you're not to be telling my child these various things. And when that happens in practice, I know a lot of us respond by going, well, if we're asked something, then we're not going to lie. Um, but you've said before uh, that that might be unhelpful, John. That is one of my least favourite phrases. If I'm asked directly, I can't lie. I think when clinicians use that phrase, I think they're often missing an opportunity because they know their child very well. Why are they saying this? What do they think about their child that they think my child won't be able to cope with this? Why? So we we need to go back when they're saying that. We need to go back and, and think, why are the parents saying that to us? Do they think we won't put it well? Or do they want us to help them to do it better? Or are they frightened their child will collapse? Or are they frightened they will collapse? What are their fears and how can we help work with those? So if you have the time and the skills and the strength of character and everything, it might be better when faced with that sort of statement to say that's really difficult for us but but it's a really difficult situation for you. Why don't you want us to talk about this? I think that sounds perfect, yes. I'm now sat here feeling really <laughs> uncomfortable because I've, um, I'm sure I've used on hundreds of occasions that evil phrase um, about not lying. Or um, if you use it, at least notice when you use it and think afterwards, did I miss something there? Is there anything I could have done differently? Maybe you'll see the parents tomorrow, next week. You can say, you know, when you asked me that, I've realised we didn't really talk about how difficult this is. Just thinking about when you used it, it, it is almost an easy out. It, it, it is. It's a way of slightly shortcutting the situation and, and, and trying to move on to something else almost. Or... It, it is, and it's become a bit formulaic. But if, you, if you've used them, don't beat yourself up, but notice it and think about it afterwards. Other ways of advising or helping parents to have these really difficult conversations? Sometimes I, th- I think it does help if we can give parents some ideas about how to begin. If you've been having a very intense conversation with parents on the ward or just off in a room just off the ward, I will often end by saying to the parents, your child will wonder what we've been talking about. What do you think we could say? And actually helping them work out something that they might say to the child. It helps you to know what they've taken from the conversation, but it also helps you help them prepare some words. You might offer that it, it's something we can do together. We could go and talk to the child together. Or it might be something that they want to do themselves, but they don't know where to begin. And they actually need some concrete, specific suggestions from you. And I've done that in the past where we've said things like, well, 
if I were saying it, the sorts of things that I might say are... I think that's very helpful because the parents, if they're going to do it with you, they're prepared for the kind of things you might be saying and they might be starting to feel a bit more comfortable and like they can trust you to do it. I know that in oncology, in a way, we have... It's a slightly weird way of thinking about it, but we have advantages in that people who come to oncology hematology services are aware that the diagnosis they have or they receive is potentially life-threatening. It isn't utterly out of the blue. It's not once every five, ten years that this happens. If you're a, if you're a new clinician or if you're, you're coming through in a specialty where that doesn't happen very much, I think it must be a, a lot more difficult to have those conversations, you know, drawing on your own experience. Is there anything that people can do in that situation where they don't have a vast amount of personal experience? I think it's it's always hard for all of us. And I think it's good that we all worry a bit about it and think about this individual child and individual family in front of us. I, I think it's it's hard for oncology. I mean, there, there is, as you say, a, a familiarity with the, uh, the whole spectrum of outcomes. But I think in oncology, the, the professionals and the parents and the children, there's so much energy that goes into cure that when you have to move from a curative phase that's been often incredibly hard, but you're doing it because because the hope is that it's going to work and then when you have to switch to a phase where we've done absolutely everything and we can't make this better I think that's very hard for oncologists too yeah that's a difficult switch but yeah. but it is a very definite thing almost yes. that, that yeah. we, we have the advantage of this scan shows your tumour has come back. The blood test demonstrates the leukaemia hasn't gone away on our, on our therapies. In other situations, people who look after children and young people with degenerative conditions, um, with, with chronic long-term illnesses that, that don't have almost definite point, and I guess this is probably because I don't have this experience, I think that's really quite scary to know when when should these conversations start? If you haven't got an MDT, a scanner, a, a result that says it's back, what? How, how do you deal with that? I think you go back to taking your cue from the child and young person. It is harder when you don't have a definite point of review, but young people will say things to you like, I think my hands are getting weaker now. And you can hear what they're saying. You can either respond to it by, well, I, I haven't noticed, they look fine to me, some kind of false reassurance. Or you could go down a very cognitive path. Um, oh, is it in both hands? Is it a particular time of day? Um, so gathering more information. Or you could just stay with what the young person's saying for a bit and say, yes, I've noticed they seem to be getting a bit weaker too, and see where the conversation takes you. Having heard those sorts of three options, I 
think the first two feels a lot more comfortable <laughs> than opening a, a, the broader conversation. But I think you can see the relief in the young person's face when you take the third option sometimes. So I suppose thinking about the handy hints or ways to take it forwards, it might be that the conversation might be as little as having two or three exchanged sentences and an acknowledgement that the conversation could happen. Absolutely. People think you're going to have a great long conversation that lasts for an hour and is really meaty. Sometimes I get so excited about half a sentence because you both know. Yeah. Sometimes it's not even in words. Children will sometimes play it out in actions, but they know you've noticed. Mm. So so the, the hint would be to not always look for two and a half hours of deep conversation. It's just something, it's something meaningful. It's something meaningful. It's half a sentence. It's a shared look. It's you observing something they're doing that's significant. Children are brilliant at dipping in and out of things. They will talk about grandma being very poorly and then they will go off out to play with their friends. They can dip in and out of conversations and they do this towards the end of their lives as well as all the way through it. Just thinking about a conversation about a a young girl who had a a malignancy that couldn't be cured who had conversations about end of life and about funeral planning and then a few hours later was chatting in a different environment um, and they were talking about who they would or wouldn't get married to Absolutely, Um, yes and people worry they haven't really understand what I've said to them they haven't taken on board what I've said of course they have but they can dip in and out and it's very healthy. I I think we swing from one extreme to the other to not talking about it or acknowledging it in any shape or form to wanting it to be heavy, deep conversations all the time. There's a middle ground. And to let that be led by the young person and the family. I think we have to really take note of the child and family's pace, but sometimes we might have to nudge it along a little bit. I think it's very helpful to have these conversations and, and to to talk about the practicals and the practical difficulties that you have doing this sort of thing. It feels, as a person who's done this from time to time and done the bad things and done some of the good things, that when it happens right, it is a hugely positive thing, even though it's really rubbish. It actually is a good thing to do to let people have these conversations and to encourage them to have the conversations that it probably sounds a strange thing to say but I think it can be one of the most rewarding things to see children and their parents and their family coming together on the same page at this point in time I think it's one of the most rewarding things to help parents to be alongside their child at this time it's, it's hard enough what they're doing to do it by themselves, but to have their parents alongside them, supporting them, I think it's one of the most important things that parents can do at this stage of their child's life. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. 
I hope that's been helpful for those people listening um, and we would be delighted to hear your views and thoughts on this and other ways we might be supporting you, the clinicians, in taking this forward. Thank you.